0: Welcome to the ASHP official podcast, your guide to issues related to medication use, public health, and the profession of pharmacy. Welcome. Thanks for joining us for this episode of Pharmacy Hot Topics, where we sit down with our experts and discuss what is currently top of the mind in the world of pharmacy. My name is Renee Robinson, and joining me for today's episode is Jared Barrett, Associate Professor at Idaho State University College of Pharmacy, Megan Penner, Clinical Assistant Professor, Idaho State University College of Pharmacy, Tristan Underwood, Doctor of Pharmacy Student in the class of 2024, and Hojung Jang, Doctor of Pharmacy Student class of 2024. And today we're here to talk about using pharmacogenomics to improve the efficacy and safety of pain medications recommended in the new CDC pain management guidelines. Welcome, and thanks for joining us today.
1: Yeah, thanks for having us. It's great to be here.
0: Perfect. so let's just jump right in. My first question is, is really, where should practitioners who are managing patients' pain be looking for guidance?
2: Thanks for that introduction, Dr. Robinson. First, practitioners should go to the 2022 CDC Clinical Practice Guidelines for Prescribing Opioids for Pain. However, they don't address pharmacogenomics and the impact on pain management. They do specify that pain management needs to be individualized. Many opioid equianalgesic studies emphasize that pharmacokinetic and pharmacogenomic differences make opioid response difficult to predict, especially when converting between agents. Additionally, many of our multimodal treatment options, such as non-steroidal anti-inflammatory drugs or NSAIDs, anticonvulsants and antidepressants have pharmacogenomic data available. If we want to truly customize medication therapy management, Knowing pharmacogenomic profiles could help.
0: Thank you, Dr. Penner. I know we are learning more and more about how important it is to consider genetic variability when recommending drug therapy. What role do pharmacogenetics and pharmacogenomics play in pain management?
2: Many classes of medications used in pain management have pharmacogenomic data available for guidance of treatment selection, dosing, and monitoring. These include our medications such as NSAIDs, antidepressants, specifically our serotonin norepinephrine reuptake inhibitors, or SNRIs, and our tricyclic antidepressants, as well as our opioids. Knowing how a patient will respond to medications can help us in optimizing multimodal therapies. Additionally, there's often a stigma around patients asking for additional opioids or stating that a certain opioid has worked better for them than others, especially when they're asking for a more potent medication. If we know a patient's pharmacogenomic panel, we may be able to anticipate the response and choose the agent they are most likely to respond to with the lowest risk of adverse effects.
0: Thank you for that clarification. So while we realize that testing for important drug gene pairs are important, can you explain how this is done and how feasible it is to use it in the community? Dr. Barrett?
1: Absolutely, thanks, Dr. Robinson. There are two approaches to pharmacogenomic testing. One way is for the patient to secure a referral from their healthcare provider to get genetic testing performed. The DNA for this test can be obtained from a cheek swab, spit collection, or a blood draw. The other way for obtaining genetic testing results is through the direct-to-consumer genetic testing companies. So savvy patients sign up online and the company sends a kit for sample collection, normally a spit kit, and sends it back to the company for sequencing. Either method results in a report that identifies genes that are different from the general population. There is quite a variety of sequencing services available, and some will focus mostly on ancestry or others on predisposition to certain diseases, while the pharmacogenomics testing panels focus on the main genes responsible for moving drugs around uh, the body and through the body. And smaller panels of genes to be tested will cost, obviously, less money. Sequencing the entire genome can cost significantly more, but provides so much more information. However, with recent advances in sequencing technology, there are some companies that are advertising entire genome sequencing for $200. I remember just a few years ago when we were excited when sequencing was being offered for less than $1,000. That
0: is really cost-effective. So, what are the considerations for cost, interpretation, portability, and maybe considerations for advances in technology? So, should you get tested again, periodically?
1: You know, once you get tested, those results are good for for the entirety of your life, if it is comprehensive, if you're testing the entire genome. If you're doing a panel, for example, you might need to do another panel that covers other genes that were not covered in the first one. And as you do more whole genome sequencing, obviously that's going to give you the most information, but with more information, it requires more technical support to interpret the results. And sometimes that is another reason to keep that gene query very small. And learning that a patient is predisposed to, for example, Alzheimer's, when all you need to know is how well you're gonna respond to your codeine prescription can drive the level of angst to unhealthy levels. So one thing we all need to understand with pharmacogenomics or any other form of genetic testing is that the results are indicators of potential outcomes. Different genetic variants come with varying degrees of confidence and responsiveness to drugs, such as what we're talking about today is multifactorial and cannot be predicted solely through one genetic allele variant. So when we communicate with patients and help them interpret their results, we need to clearly teach them that the results are not absolute or deterministic.
0: Thank you. So I wanna circle back to pain management. Can you tell us which of the commonly used medications to treat pain pose the greatest risk and discuss how therapy would need to be modified Following
3: genetic testing, some of the most commonly used pain medication that poses the greatest genetic risk includes things like codeine, tramadol, and hydrocoda. Codeine on opioid analgesic is metabolized into morphine by the polymorphic enzyme CYP2D6. Importantly, ultra-rapid metabolizer can metabolize codeine to morphine more rapidly than usual, resulting in symptoms of morphine overdose. Due to this potential risk, the FDA has made labeling changes restricting the use of codeine in children and adolescents and recommends against its use to breastfeeding mother. Uh, As for the hydrocodone and tramadol, there are the two other opioid pain medication that are metabolized by the same CYP2D6 enzyme. Patients with the reduced CYP2D6 activity may require a higher dose of tramadol and hydrocodone. To achieve adequate pain relief, while while those with increased CYP2D6 activity may require lower doses. In poor metabolizers taking hydrocodone, it's recommended to use label-recommended age and weight-based dosing, and if inadequate pain relief occurs, an alternative agent not metabolized by CYP2D6 should be considered. Similarly, in poor metabolizer, taking Tramadol, you can either increase the dose or switch agent. In ultra rapid metabolizer, it's recommended to use an alternative agent, not metabolized by C2D6 again. And if an alternative to Tramadol is not available, it's recommended to use 40% of the standard dose.
4: Adjuvant pain medications have risks linked to their use in patients with genetic polymorphisms as well. A few examples of this are amitriptyline, meloxicam, and benlifaxine. Amitriptyline is metabolized by both CYP2C19 and CYP2D6. So in patients that are CYP2C19 and CYP2D6 poor metabolizers, it's recommended in the Clinical Pharmacogenetics Implementation Consortium Guidelines, often referred to as the CPIC guidelines, to reduce the starting dose by 30 to 50% and use therapeutic drug monitoring to guide further dosing adjustments. On the other hand, in cyp 2 d ultra-rapid metabolizers, it's recommended to titrate to 1.4 times the standard starting dose to achieve pain relief. Whereas in cyp 2 c ultra-rapid metabolizers, it's actually recommended to avoid the use of amitriptyline completely if possible. Meloxicam is primarily metabolized by cyp 2 c 9 and in poor metabolizers, it's recommended to use an alternative agent to avoid the risk of adverse effects. And in intermediate metabolizers, it's recommended to reduce the initial dose to 50% of the recommended starting dose and titrate to clinical effect while closely monitoring for adverse drug events. Venlafaxine is metabolized primarily by the enzyme CYP2D6, and in poor and intermediate metabolizers, it's recommended to avoid the use of venlafaxine due to the risk of increased serum concentrations and toxicity. However, if you can't avoid using it, experts recommend monitoring serum concentrations and adjusting the dose based on response and clinical side effects. In ultra-rapid metabolizers, it's also recommended to use a different agent not metabolized by CYP2D6 since these patients tend to experience inadequate pain relief. But if you have no other options, increasing the dose to 150% of the standard starting dose and monitoring the patient for analgesic response and side effects is preferred.
0: Thank you, Ho-Jung and Tristan. Um, I have one question. So where can you find more evidence-based resources about known pain medication, drug gene interactions?
3: Well, due to the advancement in technology in the past few decades, the use of genetic testing to aid in pain management therapy recommendation has grown and the number of publicly available evidence-based resource has increased in the last five years. However, Looks like many medical professions are unaware of the published resource, resulting in underuse of generic testing. This is especially true in rural and undeserved communities with limited access to resource and support to implement this recommendation to their clinical practice. Here's some few relevant and publicly available resources you would like to suggest. Um, Number one, the CPIC guideline released in 2021 which highlights the select genotype and opioid therapy. Second, PharmGKB database, which is the NIH-funded interactive tool that encompasses clinical resource and provides information on how variety of genetic variation affects drug response. And thirdly, the Table of Pharmacogenetic Associations, published by FDA, which have data categorized by strength of evidence and impacts on the pharmacokinetic.
0: So why is it important to share gene-drug interaction information about pain medications with patients and providers? And maybe I guess the question really is, is what are the best practices in sharing this information with these potentially very different levels of medical literacy? That's a really great question. Sharing gene-drug interaction information
4: about pain medications is a crucial part of patient care for a number of reasons. The first reason is increasing patient safety. Gene drug interactions can increase the risk of adverse events and side effects, so by sharing this information with patients and providers we can ensure that patients are being prescribed medications that are safe for them and avoid potentially harmful interactions. As Dr. Penner alluded to earlier gene drug interactions can also alter the effectiveness of pain medications so by considering a patient's genetic makeup. Healthcare providers can personalize the treatment plan for each patient and choose a medication that is more likely to be effective and avoid prescribing medications that may not work as well for that particular patient. And lastly, sharing gene drug interaction information helps us keep patient autonomy at the forefront of our minds. Patients have the right to be informed about potential risks and benefits of their treatment options. So, sharing gene drug information with them can help patients understand why certain medications may or may not work well for them and empower them to make more informed decisions about their healthcare.
1: Yeah, that's a great point, uh, Tristan, that you make about that and the empowerment of the patients. In my experience, in how you communicate uh, these results, whether you're communicating with other healthcare providers or the patients to to communicate pharmacogenomic results, it's always best to keep it simple. And what we're seeing with the rise of the direct-to-consumer genetic testing companies is that the lay public has a pretty good understanding of the importance of genetic testing and how it can help them make informed decisions about their health. A group of researchers and pharmacy students here at Idaho State University conducted a, a survey study about the perceptions between the lay audience and healthcare students enrolled at ISU. And to our surprise, the two groups did not differ in their basic level of understanding or appreciation for pharmacogenomic testing. So rule number one is to keep it simple and rule two is to ask follow-up questions to ascertain the comprehension. And what we're seeing is that more and more people are understanding the benefits of pharmacogenomic testing. This typically, gives us a chance to ensure that the patient has correctly understood the impact of their results and what the next steps of action are.
0: Thank you, Dr. Barrett. So Dr. Penner, given what is currently available, what do you hope to see as a part of the mainstream practice in say the next five years and then the next 10 years?
2: In the next five years, I would like to see pharmacogenomic testing results more easily embedded in the electronic health systems ideally similar to a drug interaction check. This would require electronic health record integration and faster turnaround times on pharmacogenomic testing in order for inpatient use to be feasible. If we had these data available at every transition of care, we could identify more effective and safe treatment options. This could be a more effective way for payers to consider pain management. The most effective medications aren't always the cheapest, but they may be cost effective for select patients. In the next 10 years, I would like to see more robust data for opioids. I would also like to see more data on agents that are starting to receive more attention in multimodal pain management, such as ketamine and dexmedetomidine, so we can optimize perioperative outcomes.
0: So I'd like to say um, thank you to our guests. I know this is all the time that we have for today, but thank you, Dr. Penner, Dr. Barrett, Ho Jung Jang, and Tristan Underwood for joining us today. And if you haven't before, I encourage you all to check out ASHP's online resources. You can find member-exclusive offerings such as the Preceptor Toolkit, the Research Resource Center, and more. So thanks for joining us today for our episode of Hot Topics in Pharmacy. And if you enjoyed today's conversation, be sure to subscribe to the ASHP Official Podcast for more great content. Thanks.
2: Thank you for listening to ASHP
0: Official